Welcome to the Headspace Podcast, where we attempt to make sense of our never-ending existential crisis through the lens of artistic expression. You have no idea what loss is. Everyone I have cared for has either died or left me. No, we made it. Come on. What is going on, guys? Welcome back to the Headspace Podcast. I am your host, Xavier Reichbaum, founder of Headspace Productions, a multimedia production company specializing in film and theater. On today's episode of the podcast, we are going to be looking at the film The Whale, starring Brendan Fraser and directed by Darren Aronofsky. So I hadn't watched this movie for a while after hearing about it, which was really weird because, as many of you probably know, A24 is my favorite film studio. I love what they do. I love the films they make. I love their approach to the industry, and I love how they take chances on people. Uh, It's a very artistically honest studio, in my opinion, and it's a studio that I would love to work for someday. A24, if you're listening, please call me. That would be an amazing honor. But the situation with this film was weird because it's just, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is just, it's more so weird that I didn't think to watch it immediately because it basically checked all the boxes for a movie that I that would absolutely be at the top of my watch list, but it just wasn't. However, I did watch it uh, yesterday morning. It was really weird. I went to bed really early the previous night, so I woke up at like four in the morning, and I am so weird. You know, I woke up at four in the morning, and the first thing I wanted to do was watch a movie. Uh, that should definitely go to show you how truly passionate I am. And I was like, well, what do I, uh, what do I want to watch? And I just so happened to be rewatching uh, Chris Stuckman's best of 2022 video and the whale was one of his honorable mentions if it wasn't one of his honorable mentions it definitely uh was in his top 10 picks for that year but it was talked about in that video and chris duckman is somebody who i trust to an absurd degree so when he said that he really liked it and when even he started singing uh brendan fraser's phrases uh praises and then also Brendan Fraser winning Best Actor at the Oscars, which was just fucking crazy. Like, Brendan Fraser? Like, look, I love Brendan Fraser, but he's just not an actor that you expect to hear headlines about winning Best Actor at the Oscars. Like, we all love Brendan, but, you know, that's just not something you expect to hear about him. So I was very surprised when I heard that. And all of these things added up to just me deciding in that moment at about 6 in the morning, because I was up for about two hours just doing whatever the fuck. I honestly don't actually remember too much because the movie, as we're going to discuss throughout this video, not this video, this episode, I need to get used to saying episode on the podcast. I'm so used to doing YouTube that I always say video, though if you're watching this on YouTube, it technically is a video even though it's just one image on screen uh, for the entire for the entire episode, just one graphic that I've made. And here's the thing, I knew that the movie was a little bit divisive, so I didn't want to go full out and buy it and just spend a bunch of money buying the movie, so I decided to rent it instead. So I rented it for $7.99, I got it in Ultra HD, and I watched this thing, and I was glued to my seat from the very first frame. I am so excited to talk about this film. It's honestly the perfect kind of movie to discuss on this podcast, uh, given what the whole premise of this podcast is. So we're going to be talking about this film today. I'm going to go through it uh, extremely, extremely in-depth. I'm going to talk about um, some of the people behind it. I'm going to talk about what the general story is, and then we're going to go through the movie completely chronologically, beat by beat, and I'm going to take pauses through my reading of the beat by beat synopsis of the events of the film to uh you know do like sort of enact the point of what this entire podcast is which is um breaking down the themes and deeper meanings and existential um services that this movie provides and i'm very excited to do that but before we begin i do want to quickly say that this podcast is officially available on all major podcast streaming platforms. You can get this podcast on Apple Podcasts completely free of charge. It's available on Spotify, also Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music. I'm also uploading these episodes consistently to my YouTube channel on the same upload schedule that it is for all the podcast uh, streaming platforms. And the source of it is 
also rss.com. That is a website where tons of people are making podcasts, and it's also a website that allows you to get distribution on all the other platforms that I just listed. So if you want to listen to it online, you're able to do that as well. Um, I'm currently trying to get, there's a few other platforms that I'm still trying to get it on, but it is on all the major ones. As I said, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, and Amazon Music are the four really, really big ones in the industry. I believe it's also on a platform called Podcast Index. Basically, what I'm saying is anywhere you want to listen to this podcast, you can listen to it. And if it just so happens to not be on your preferred platform, it is always on my YouTube channel at Zabies522 on YouTube uh, for your listening pleasure. So let's go ahead and get into The Whale. This film was directed by Darren Aronofsky, a filmmaker who I actually haven't seen a lot of movies from. Obviously, I'm aware of the movies he's made. I have seen probably his two best films, those being Requiem for a Dream and Black Swan. Those films are genuinely incredible. Black Swan is one of my favorite horror movies of all time and honestly just one of my favorite movies all time and Requiem for a Dream is an absolutely searing drama that is the reason why I have never done drugs of any kind aside from uh, CBD to you know handle my anxiety and depression from time to time. So this film tells the story of Charlie, an online English professor suffering from chronic obesity who is on the verge of death. He is secluded to his rundown apartment, unable to leave, and in his final days wants nothing more than to make peace with his trauma and rekindle his relationship with his estranged daughter, to whom he hasn't spoken in nearly a decade. Just a quick rundown of all the characters that are going to be progressing this plot along. We have Charlie, played by Brendan Fraser. He is our lead character. We have Liz, played played by Hong Chow. Super happy to see her in such a great film. I thought she was one of the best parts of the menu, and it was really cool for me to see her get to expand on her acting abilities in this film. Uh, as I said, Hong Chow plays Liz, who is Charlie's best friend, and also acts as his caregiver in his obesity. And then we have good old Sadie Sink in here, who obviously most of us love from Stranger Things, but who I particularly adore from all-too-well 10-minute version the short film fight me i do not care i'm a hardcore swifty till the day i die her character's name is ellie and she is charlie's daughter and we're going to be uh talking i'm probably going to go off on a few tangents of about this throughout the throughout the episode but um seeing sadie sink give such an incredible performance as a teenage girl named ellie just made me really want to see her portray Ellie in an on-screen adaptation of The Last of Us. Look, I adore The Last of Us show, and, it, you know, The Last of Us is definitely a franchise that I absolutely am going to talk about on this channel at some point, obviously. Like, The Last of Us is so much of the reason why I even do what I do. Just that story, like, I played that game back, I played the first game all the way back in 2013 when it came out. I was probably way too young to play it, a little too young to handle it, but I did not give a shit. I played the hell out of that game, and all the better for it. What I'm saying is, even though I adore the show, and I love Bella Ramsey as that character, I still, after watching The Whale, could not shake the desire to see Sadie Sink portray her. Plus, I also just think Sadie Sink looks so much like Ellie. Not that that's something that really matters to me. I mean, Bella Ramsey looks nothing like Ellie from the games, and I still had no issue with uh, with them, sorry, in that character. Um, I think they did such an incredible job. They're an incredible actor and performer and so talented. But still, after watching The Whale, I'm like, oh, God, I at least would love to see, like, a, a Last of Us fan film with Sadie Sink as that character, but who knows? We'll probably never see it, and honestly, what Bella Ramsey is doing is fucking amazing. As I've already said, they are an incredible actor, and I'm so excited to see what season two has in store. That was a massive tangent. Going on with our list of characters, we have Thomas, played by Ty Simpkins, who I'm so, like, proud of in a weird way i mean i've been following ty simpkins career ever since 2011 with the first insidious film you know he did that film and then he was um gray in the jurassic world movies and now he's in this super metaphorical darren aronofsky a24 movie and it's just really cool to see his range as an actor though he plays a character in here that i 
you know, have a lot of um, biases and things against, which once again we'll discuss when we get into the film. Uh, because Thomas, who is the character that Ty Simpkins plays, is a missionary from a church organization called New Life Church. Then we have Mary, played by Samantha Morton from The Walking Dead, surprisingly enough, and she is Charlie's ex-wife and therefore Ellie's mother. Then we have a pretty small character in the film, but who does play a fairly big uh, role in the events of the film, and that is Dan, who is, funnily enough, credited as Dan the Pizza Man, and he he is played by Satya Sridharan. I know I just fucking butchered that name. Um, sir, if you are watching this uh, or listening to this podcast, I truly apologize, though I doubt you are. He plays a pizza delivery guy, which may not sound like a significant part of the movie, but we will get into it later. And then we have Alan, who isn't played by anyone because this character is never seen on screen, but is an extremely important character who is sort of um, a driving force of all the events of the film in a way. Alan is Charlie's long-lost boyfriend who passed away a long time ago. And those are all the characters in this movie that progress the narrative. So now we are going to get into the full movie recap. Before we get into it, I am going to give a little spoiler-free mini-review of it, just in case anybody listening has not seen the film. You can listen to this little mini-spoiler, uh, this mini-non-spoiler section, just so you can get sort of a review, like a general review of the film, like what I thought of it overall as a film. Uh, you, then you can go and watch the movie and come back and listen to the rest of the episode. So, Overall, um, I really quite adore this movie. Um, this is one of the best dramas that I have ever seen. It is based on a play, um, which I'm not, I wasn't familiar with the play at all until this movie came about, and I still haven't seen nor read a production of that play, so I do apologize for that. Uh, I definitely want to, as you guys know, I'm a massive, uh, massive theater person, actor, like on stage, off stage, I, I've done it all, um, so I'm definitely interested in checking that out. But as a film, uh, as I said, I thought this was fucking incredible. I mean, everything you've heard about Brendan Fraser's performance is true, and honestly, it's probably still underselling it. He is truly mesmerizing in this movie. It's easily, easily the best performance he has ever given in a film. He was so deserving of the Oscar. If there was an honor higher than the Oscar, Brendan Fraser is absolutely deserving of it in this film. He deserves a Lifetime Achievement Award for this role, and I still think I'm underselling it. I truly cannot sell enough how amazing he is in this movie. I also thought it was insanely well-crafted on a technical level, which should come as no surprise. This is a Darren Aronofsky movie. You know, that's to be expected at this point, but but this film was particularly well-crafted and stood out specifically in that way uh, in Darren Aronofsky's filmography, just in my opinion. And it's very easy to lose sight of all the other talent on screen here when Brendan Fraser is giving such a fucking incredible performance, but everybody else I thought did an amazing job too. My only criticism with the movie is actually in this regard, however, while I love Ty Simpkins as an actor, and for the most part I think he was pretty amazing in this movie and pretty amazing at portraying the kind of person that he's portraying who is absolutely a kind of person that does exist in real life I thought he did a great job but there were still a few moments where I was like I don't know you know like there were a few moments where I'm like this seems a little amateur to me especially for Ty Simpkins who I've always thought is such a, an amazing and underrated actor who doesn't get enough appreciation even if he is in you know these big name projects um there, there were just a couple moments throughout this movie uh, where I was like uh I feel like you can do better than that man it, it never took me out of it too much. I just sort of picked up on it um, at a couple points. But other than that, I adored everything about the movie. I thought its messages were beautiful. I thought the tone was achieved beautifully. The music, just the way it was made, and I don't know. I just truly everything on a technical level about this movie is masterful on a narrative level. The themes and the writing and just all of it. it. It's so, so good. Highly, highly recommend. Definitely not for the faint of heart. You definitely have to be in a certain kind of mood to be able to watch this movie because it is so consistently depressing, as we will discuss when we're done with our beat-by-beat -beat synopsis. So, yeah, overall, I really, really love this movie. It honestly might be in my top five dramas of all time. I think it's absolutely worth your time. Ignore any preconceived notions. Just go in and watch it, and hopefully you 
get from it what I got from it. So now we are going to jump into the full movie recap, which I do have to give credit where credit is due. I was just going to use the beat-by-beat -beat plot synopsis available on Wikipedia, which is available for pretty much every movie in existence if you look it up. Um, but unfortunately, I noticed that the Wikipedia synopsis sort of left out a lot of like specific moments and it was a lot more general than I prefer for this episode so instead I'm using a site called the moviespoiler.com um, who's this is a website that specializes in uploading beat by beat uh, plot recaps of movies and to give even more credit this specific um, beat by beat uh, spoiler uh, this specific beat by beat um, recap of the film was submitted by Jeremy. So Jeremy from the moviespoiler.com, thank you for this extremely well-written and detailed uh, recap of the events of the film. It's definitely going to help me um, in in this episode. So without further ado, let's get into it. And as I've already said, I am going to be taking pauses throughout uh, this recap to sort of give some thoughts and talk about, you know, things whatever comes to mind so here we go the film begins with somebody getting off a bus and walking down a long road not far from here an english college professor named charlie is giving a lecture to his students via webcam but he pretends that his camera doesn't work so that his students will not see his appearance charlie is morbidly obese weighing 600 pounds after enduring a personal tragedy while masturbating he begins to suffer intense chest pains he begins trying to read an essay about moby dick just as a missionary named thomas coming from new life church comes to try and preach the word of god to him Charlie instead asks Thomas to read him the essay because he wants it to be the last thing he hears before he dies. Because in this moment, um, as Charlie's having these chest pains, he thinks that this is it. He thinks his heart is giving out. He's th he thinks he's about to die. Uh, fortunately, he does not. Um, but the most important thing about this moment is Charlie asking Thomas to read this essay. Uh, this is going to be part of the main emotional core and payoff of the movie. Charlie's nurse and only friend Liz comes over and orders Thomas to leave as she has disdain for the New Life Church. Liz gets Charlie regulated and urges him to go to a hospital because he is at risk for congestive heart failure with high blood pressure, but he says he cannot since he does not have life insurance. This is another consistent thing with Charlie's character, him not wanting people to pity him or help him. Um, he loves helping people. He loves giving love to people, which actually fits very well in with the metaphor of the movie. Um, if you don't know, blue whales are the animals who have the biggest hearts, like literally, like physically, uh, on on the planet and so that the, the metaphor with this movie about the whale and specifically its references to Moby Dick as a story um, are very intact and they work in many many different ways and one of the ways they work is representing Charlie's emotions uh, how he views the world and what he wants to do for people as a result of his unfortunate condition. Charlie consistently orders pizza from a place called Gambino's from a delivery person whose name he does not yet know, and he doesn't interact with him. Charlie usually leaves money in the mailbox while the pizza delivery driver briefly speaks to him from outside before leaving. Now it's at this point that Charlie calls his daughter Ellie, who he hasn't spoken to in nearly 10 years. Ellie visits by his request, and she resents him for leaving her and her mother Mary when she was eight because he was engaged in an affair with his student, Alan. Now, I do want to make this clear very, very much off the bat. There was, while Alan was a student of Charlie's, there wasn't like a massive age gap or anything. They were very close to being the same age. So it's not like one of those things, but it's still the, the weird thing between like a student and teacher relationship. Ellie states that Mary doesn't know that she is visiting him. Charlie offers Ellie all of his money if she just spends time with him. He also offers to help her with her schoolwork, and she gets in trouble for bullying other students. When Liz finds out Ellie has been here, she scolds Charlie for having her here, saying it's a bad 
idea. Now, if I didn't make it clear enough before, Liz took Charlie's blood pressure and informed him that he is going to die by the weekend if he does not seek medical attention. And as I've already said, Charlie denies the medical attention at this point in the film, saying he simply doesn't have life insurance and he wouldn't be able to afford it and he would just be living in debt for the rest of his life. So Thomas, the missionary from New Life Church, visits Charlie again and he helps Charlie pick up a key to Alan's room that he dropped. Liz shows up again, and although she attempts to send Thomas away again, she privately talks to him outside. Liz states that her adoptive father was the pastor of New Life, and Alan was her brother. Overcome with the guilt for being gay that was instilled in Alan while being a part of New Life, he tragically committed suicide by jumping off of a bridge, which led to Charlie's binge eating and depression, as well as Liz's hatred for the church. Despite this, Thomas believes he is here to bring God into Charlie's life. After Thomas leaves, Liz gives Charlie a sandwich, which he starts choking on until Liz helps him cough up the food. And as I said, this film is very consistently extremely depressing. Like, it, it's going and it's just like, damn, there's not a single, like, happy scene in here is there. There's definitely some levity for sure. It's not like all is lost when it comes to this movie, but for the most part, it just seems like things just keep getting worse and worse for Charlie. And also, since he's becoming a, a bigger part of the plot now, I should talk about Thomas, who I said was my one criticism of the movie, and it just has to do with a few moments with Ty Simpkins' performance as a character and who the character represents throughout the movie, and the fact that Ty Simpkins, for the most part, throughout the majority of the movie, is giving an amazing performance. I truly truly do adore the role that this character plays. When it comes to that, that aspect of it, I really, really love what it does for this story, and I love the backstory and the dynamics between these characters. You um, never really get an understanding as to why Thomas is so devout, but you do get a very clear understanding as to what led Charlie down this um tragic life of slowly killing himself and why Liz now has such a disdain for the church. Thomas is the only religious character in the movie from what we can tell because every other character in the movie um, definitely takes shots at religion and specifically uh, Christianity um, at many moments, which will be offensive to some, but I found the portrayal of it in this movie very sympathetic, uh, strangely enough, and I am by by no means a religious person. I actually have a, a lot of stuff against um, modern day organized religion. And so I appreciated that. I appreciated the way this film handled it. And it did sort of help me to connect with Charlie and Liz and uh, later Ellie when Ellie has stuff to say about the religion as well. So it honestly did serve as a way for me to feel closer to these characters. And obviously it's a tale as old as time with the church uh, condemning homosexuality. Just historically, it, it happens to an absurd degree, and obviously it's absurd to do so, and, you know, Alan eventually taking his own life due to the religious trauma that he experienced, um, it's, it's, man, tragic, Tr tragic stuff, and we're gonna get more into it as the film progresses. Ellie continues making visits, but she coldly rebuts Charlie's attempts to connect with her. When she says that Charlie could have made attempts to stay connected to her throughout her life, he says he tried, and also tried to send her and Mary money. Charlie keeps trying to assure Ellie that she is an amazing person. So basically what this whole conflict is, is that Ellie once had a great relationship with Charlie. It was once a, a very beautiful, very um, well-established uh, father-daughter relationship, but it sort of, uh, well, not even sort of, it completely fell off the rails when uh, Charlie left Mary for Alan. Um, which again is something else that we're going to get even deeper into in further discussion of the film. And um, the way Ellie expresses a lot of this is very angry, and rightfully so. She's 17 years old. He left her when she was 8. It's been almost a decade. She has every right to be fucking pissed at him. Of course, we as the audience understand her perspective, but also, of course, we as the audience feel bad for Charlie whenever she's going off on him because we understand how much pain and, and we see how much pain he's gone through and what he's had to endure. And I would hope most of us um, are sympathetic to him because of what happened with Alan and how tragic his life has been. And 
all of that stuff. We don't necessarily condone all of his actions, but we definitely understand them because Charlie as a character on paper is a character that we should hate. Like, right off the bat. We have every reason to hate him, but we don't. That's a testament to Br Brendan Fraser's incredible performance that got him the Oscar, Darren Aronofsky's direction, the writing. There's so much about it that makes him such an interesting character and one that is somehow possible to root for despite all of his faults and mistakes in life. It's very easy for us to infer based on Ellie's behavior that she is also suffering from depression and anxiety. Uh, she probably doesn't have many friends. She's very dark-natured uh, and very aggressive. She has a lot of built-up anger inside of herself and despite all of this, Charlie still keeps trying to assure her that she is an amazing person. You gotta look at this from Charlie's perspective because obviously he did a shady thing by leaving her but now like, look, he left her when she was eight. She might as well have been a fucking fetus in the eyes of her father. Now he is seeing her almost as a fully grown woman, and that is very trippy for him. That That's an insane moment for him to see her and hear her talk in a, you know, the way a 17-year-old talks. You know, all of his memories of her only go up to the point at which she was eight. And now she's 17, like I said, almost a fully grown woman. It's like, this is a father and daughter, but it's almost like two strangers are meeting for the first time. And it's it's truly, truly beautiful. Ellie then gives Charlie a sandwich, which she crushed up a bit of Ambien in to make him fall asleep. Directly after this, Thomas visits again, and Ellie smokes weed and gives some of it to Thomas while also making crude comments to deliberately make him feel uncomfortable. Thomas states that he used to have a problem with smoking weed habitually, I'm sorry if I didn't pronounce that correctly, Ellie then brings up that New Life stopped having door-to-door -door missionaries, which forces Thomas to come clean that he left New Life a while ago because he stole money and ran away from home. Ellie records this confession on her phone as a voice memo and also takes pictures of Thomas and Charlie. We do not yet know at this point in the film why she is recording all of this stuff, why she is taking pictures and all of that, but it does result in a uh, pretty pretty cool payoff later, uh, later in the film. So this is when a little bit more depth is given to the Thomas character rather than just, oh, your stereotypical door-to-door -door Christian preaching the good word of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Raise your hands. Mm, we love Jesus. Jesus is our savior. I am so sorry. My southern accent is fucking terrible, despite the fact that I lived in the south for a pretty good portion of my life. In fact, I would even say the better part of my life. Yeah, a lot of it did not enjoy. Did not enjoy. A lot of very hateful and bigoted people down there. <laughs> and just to be clear, we're talking like deep south. Like I'm talking Alabama. I'm talking Mississippi. Not even just Mississippi. Coastal Mississippi. Ocean Springs, if you if you are aware of that town. It's right outside of Biloxi. Yeah, I'm from the Deep South. Okay, well, I'm not from the Deep South. I was born in, Col I was born in Colorado. Let's get back to the fucking movie. This is a, a moment in the film that I appreciated because it made Thomas not just a one-dimensional character. We sort of get an understanding that he has a past struggling with addiction, similar to the way that Charlie is struggling with addiction, obviously at a much less severe level, plus it's just weed, it's a, a much different situation, as Ellie does point out, because Thomas is like, no, it was a problem, like I was an addict, and then Ellie's like, no, you were a stoner, you had a hobby, that was it, uh, which is another thing that this film does a great job at doing, which is prevent, uh, not preventing, um, presenting us with many different perspectives of the same situation. Now, after Ellie's very funny uh, little sequence of intentionally making Thomas uncomfortable, uncomfortable, sort of poking fun at the fact that um, a lot of times very uh, young, devout Christians, it's, it's very easy to make them uncomfortable with certain questions just about things that are kind of mundane to anybody else, you know, like sex and weed and, you know, partying and raves and things like that, drinking. But then she does, as expected, uh, start to ask some um, more serious questions. Uh, she starts questioning why Thomas consistently uh, continues to uh, visit Charlie and, and, and stuff like that. And Charlie genuinely, um, I mean, Thomas genuinely believes that 
him at the beginning of this movie showing up at Charlie's doorstep just as Charlie um, thought he was about to die was a sign. As a devout Christian, Thomas, Thomas took that to mean that God was telling him that Charlie is somebody that he is supposed to save, um, which is, um, well... Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to get into to all my feelings about that uh, quite yet, but um, there are a few scenes that I've noticed that this um, has skipped over a little bit. Um, one that's coming to mind right now, um, I mean, for the most part, this is doing a very good job, but one that's coming to mind is one where Thomas tries to explain to Charlie, you know, he's trying to convert Charlie and whatnot, and this actually happened right before Liz shows up and tries to uh, kick him out of the house and explains uh, her disdain for New Life Church. It's a scene where Thomas is essentially, you know, explaining his faith in the Bible to, to Charlie. And, you know, Charlie's an English professor, and he's just like, I was a part of New Life. I went to New Life. Um, I was devout at one point. I've read the entire Bible, and I just found it to be the most tragic story ever. And Charlie sort of goes into why he is not particularly a man of faith. And at that point in the film, that was when... Um, Liz um, explained to Thomas very bluntly that new life caused a lot of pain for Charlie and part of the reason why Charlie is not a part of the church anymore and he tells him that they killed his boyfriend. Now, I had hope throughout the film that Thomas was going to be one of the good Christians who wasn't homophobic or transphobic or, you know, phobic anything. I was very hoping, uh, very hoping that Thomas wasn't going to be your um, checklist, you know, like textbook, narrow-minded, uh, modern-day Christian who uh, is part of an organized religious group, but unfortunately it does uh, go in that direction. And by unfortunately, I mean like, you know, unfortunately for that character. I don't mean that it's a detriment to the movie. Anyway, so after the whole scene with Thomas and Ellie, Thomas visits Charlie one last time, informing him that Ellie recorded his confession and sent it to his family in Iowa. Instead of reacting angrily, however, they have forgiven him and invited him to return home. Thomas sees this as a sign to try and convert Charlie, but Charlie rejects that idea. He starts talking to Thomas about his relationship with Alan and the side effects of his obesity, which make Thomas uncomfortable enough to call Charlie disgusting. Charlie sends Thomas away. So, basically, what this whole section of the film is, I mean, this is when it's it's... Like, it's shown very explicitly to us that Thomas is a fucking awful person. Uh, he basically um, tells Charlie that he needs to save him, and he's realized that the reason uh, Alan died was because he chose a life of sin. He gave into the temptations of the flesh by being a homosexual, and that's why he killed himself. It's sort of a, a natural selection pitch. Like, the reason that Alan died was because he was gay. And Charlie makes sure to confirm this, to like, so that he knows, like, he, because he doesn't want to make assumptions, but he wants to, he, so he questions Thomas to make sure that that is explicitly what Thomas is saying, and Thomas confirms it. He's like, yes, Alan died because he was gay. He chose a life of sin over a life of salvation. And this is when we realize that Thomas is not a good per not a good person of uh, not a good person at all and he is definitely one of the bad christians that are so much of the reason why i am no longer a person of faith uh you can see why i relate to charlie as a character so much charlie rebuts this uh in a very uh nice way in my opinion well not a nice way but in a way that just it was a very crowd-pleasing, uh, I found it to be a very crowd-pleasing moment where he goes into the detail about his and Alan's relationship and how in love they were, and he, I mean, he gets detailed, you know, like, it, it does, you know, a, a conservative Christian hearing this, you know, who, that that's what Thomas is, he's very uncomfortable by this, but again, what Alan is describing is so normal to everybody, I am really trying to not go on a tangent about my religious trauma right now, but it's just a very, very well-written and very relatable portion of of the movie for me. So while Ellie is with Charlie, Liz brings Mary to the apartment after telling her that Ellie has been visiting. Ellie mentions that Charlie offered to pay her, and Liz says Charlie doesn't have any money. As it turns out, Liz simply did not know that Charlie has been saving money for Ellie, and she reacts and she reacts angrily because he could have used the money to help himself and get medical care. So she storms out of the apartment. Ellie also berates Charlie and tells him to quote fucking die already, 
which obviously very like cuts quite deep uh, for Charlie. Charlie then talks to Mary, initially reminiscing about when they were still married and thinking about a memory where they were at the beach together with Ellie, which we do see some visuals of. Mary also tells Charlie that Ellie had always cared for him more than her, calling her a terror for how she treats her classmates and other people. But Charlie disagrees and thinks that Ellie does care for people since she got Thomas to return to his family. Mary also tells him that she once encountered Alan and wanted to confront him over Charlie's affair with him, but she just helped him with groceries without letting him know who she was. As Mary leaves, Charlie tearfully tells her he just needs to know he did one thing right with his life. Because Mary still wants to sort of keep Charlie out of Ellie's life, and Ellie is sort of Charlie's final lifeline. You know, Charlie is feeling so much regret and remorse over um this this life that he has lived and so many of the so many of the decisions he made and you know he's been saving all this money all this time to give to Ellie when he inevitably passes away and keep in mind that the only person who knows that Charlie's going to die by the weekend is Liz he has not told anybody else that he's going to die none of that in this scene he does tell Mary he does tell Mary but Ellie uh doesn't know until the final scene i'm pretty sure it is and this is absolutely the scene that got brendan fraser the oscar because as mary is leaving and seemingly all hope is lost for charlie he turns around in this devastating shot this just such heartbreakingly just desolate expression and tone delivered by by Brendan Fraser where he just screams I need to know that I have done one thing right with my life and god I mean I was weeping so loud I might as well have been screaming it is so powerful the music is so so beautiful and I truly truly felt for him I mean we're gonna get into this when we talk about the film a little deeper but I just can't get over how amazing this movie gets its feelings and its emotions across. It is so painfully raw and honest, and I just fucking adore it. Now, before we get into this next moment, a little bit of background for another scene that happened earlier in the movie, which was uh, the pizza delivery guy showing up, and then, you know, Charlie is talking to him from inside the house, because obviously he doesn't want anybody to see his appearance, and Charlie's, like, you know, giving the whole spill, like, money's in the mailbox, leave it on the porch, and the pizza guy interrupts, and he's like, yeah, yeah, money's in the mailbox on the porch, and then Charlie's like, well, how do you know? And then the pizza guy is like, well, you know, you, you order this pizza every single night at the same time. And, you know, I, I've been the driver that has been dropping them off. Um, and then one night the driver um, introduces himself. He's like, well, I mean, you know, I deliver these pizza every night. Just figured you'd want to know my name. So we learn that the pizza driver's name is Dan. And then Charlie is like, oh, I, I'm Charlie. And then Dan is like, is everything OK? Charlie's like, yeah. And then Dan is like, okay, well, I'm going to go now. And then Charlie's like, thanks. Thanks, Dan. You know, Dan's like, yeah. And it was such a nice, happy moment in the film, though, of course, Darren Aronofsky cannot maintain happiness to save the lives of any of his movies <laughs> because this scene that we are going to talk about now was truly devastating. And the reason it's so devastating is because the moment that I just talked about um, – felt like, as I said, that one moment of happiness so far throughout the film where it felt like Charlie, like, made a, like, a friend or, like, somebody was, like, actually treating him like a fucking human being, which is why this next scene, which I'm going to talk about now, is so devastating. Charlie orders the pizza again that night, and he goes outside to get it after he thinks that Dan has left, but we see that Dan did not leave and actually chose to stay outside to finally see Charlie. And when Dan sees him for the first time, he reacts with surprise and disgust and storms off. And this is Charlie's breaking point. This leads to Charlie experiencing a binge-eating episode all leading up to him vomiting. He then sends a very profane email to his college students, telling them to disregard the writing assignments and write something, quote, fucking honest. And you know, I don't want to be like, oh, this scene is devastating, because, like, this whole movie, like, every scene is devastating to some degree, but it's just, like, this scene is just... You just hate watching it, you know, you just, it's so painful seeing this guy do it to himself, but you can understand where he's coming, it's its so painful, it, it's so painful, it was so hard to watch, but as I said, 
It's absolutely fucking incredible. The next morning, in light of Charlie's profane message the previous night, he gives one last lecture as he tells his students he's being replaced for what he told them. He reads some of their honest entries, as they did actually submit um, based on the the what his very profane message said that he wanted, he reads some of their entries, telling them that their thoughts matter more than the course itself. He then turns the webcam on, finally, to show himself to the students before he throws the laptop against the fridge, shattering it. And this is where it's really hit home how valuable honesty is to Charlie as a character. And we can likely infer that this became such a massive part of how he fundamentally is as a person earlier in the film when Liz informed him that he was going to die by the weekend in in less than a week. Because, as we know from his backstory, he lived a very dishonest life. So it makes sense to me that when he realizes he's about to be dead and he's trying to come to terms with his trauma and tie up a bunch of loose ends and make peace with certain people, that honesty would become the forefront of all of his motiv- uh, motivations, and when he sees dis- dishonesty, it fucking pisses him off. Now, I haven't really gone into a lot of detail about the several meetings between Charlie and Ellie throughout the film, but Charlie is trying to help her with her schoolwork, mainly some essays that she, some essays that she needs to write in class, and namely one essay that she's uh, supposed to write about this poem that she hates. And Charlie is like, well, it's actually a beautiful poem, you know, maybe if you actually read it, and then Ellie, like, comes clean. She's like, no, like, I did actually read it. And this is what I thought about it. I absolutely hated it. And, you know, she goes on this whole spill that is very profane and vulgar. And instead of Charlie being like, oh, you just have no taste. You don't know what true art is. He was like, that's an interesting perspective. And you know what? That was your honest opinion. And that would make a very good essay, which I appreciated for a number of reasons, probably least important to the film being the fact that it seems like like high school English teachers and even college English teachers, they will assign you pieces of literature and just ask you to write an essay about it, analyzing it just with the, the assumption that you're going to adore it just because it's a very well-known and overall well-regarded piece of literature. So I really love that the moving knowledge that a lot of times students have such a hard time writing those essays because maybe, you know, like art is subjective and these students just genuinely didn't like the piece of literature that their teacher assigned them. So Charlie tells Ellie that he will write the essay for her if she just writes something honest in her notebook. Uh, And I'm sort of bouncing all over the place. I'm sort of not going as chronologically through the film. I'm just filling in some of the gaps before we get to the final final few scenes of the movie here. So Ellie does uh, write in that notebook, and uh, I don't have uh, verbatim what she wrote in the notebook, but essentially... It's along the lines of, Charlie's apartment stinks, I hate him, I hate everyone, blah blah blah. So we have a scene where Charlie is reading that to himself, out loud, uh, alone in his apartment, and he interestingly repeats the I hate everyone line uh, twice. Um, And he sort of gets a laugh because he counts the syllables of each line and realizes that it is a poem uh, syllable uh, structure. Uh, it goes, if I'm not mistaken, it goes five, seven, five, seven. And he gets a laugh out of that, which is another thing about his character. He seems like he is in such a desolate situation, and yet he seems to find happiness and joy in the smallest things. And specifically, the importance of this moment is him finding it in his daughter, who he is obviously, like, attempting to get to know um, throughout the course of the movie, which is why it's so emotionally fulfilling for him to get joy from her despite her ruthless behavior. All right, so let's get back into it. Liz returns to Charlie's apartment after feeling guilty for leaving him. However, they both know that he is close to death. When Ellie comes back, Liz says with tears in her eyes that she will wait downstairs. Ellie is angry because Charlie switched her essay, causing her to fail. It is revealed that the Moby Dick essay that he and Thomas that he had Thomas read him at the beginning of the movie was an essay that Ellie wrote in eighth grade. Before she storms out again, Charlie tells her that she is perfect and requests that she read him the essay because he knows that now he is officially without a doubt going to die. 
So Ellie reads the essay, and Charlie begins to walk over to her without his walker, and this harkens back to a moment earlier in the movie where Ellie, in a fit of rage before she was about to storm out on Charlie, was like, walk over here, get up and walk over here, and Charlie attempted to use his walker, and Ellie threw, like pushed it away, pushed it to the side, and was like, no, get up over here without any help and walk over to me, and he wasn't able to do it, and this is calling back to that. So, um... Ellie tearfully reads the essay as Charlie comes closer to her. He actually manages to stand up with all of his weight and start to walk over to her. He then appears to die with his spirit essentially rising into heaven, and it's sort of up for debate um, what this is. I don't know if I interpret it as him rising into heaven. I actually feel like that would be a little contradictory to a lot of other things that we were shown throughout the film, but he does definitely die in this moment, and he does get his wish of the last thing uh, that he hears before he dies is that essay. And the last thing we see is Charlie's final thoughts, being the memory of him with Ellie and Mary at the beach. So that is the overall plot uh, recap of The Whale, provided by the moviespoiler.com, written by Jeremy. There is no last name, so I'm just going to say Jeremy from the moviespoiler.com. Thank you. So now that we have discussed all of that, um, let's go a little bit more in depth and let me just sort of talk about uh, the existential side of the movie and, um, you know, break it down as much as I can. So, obviously, the most emotionally impactful aspect of the movie for me is Charlie's dynamic with Ellie. And that final scene had me weeping so loud. As I said earlier, I may as well have been screaming. I was just alone in my dorm room watching this movie on my small, like, 36-inch TV monitor that I have on my desk right beside my bed, and I couldn't control myself. I mean, legitimate several tears just running down my face, one after the other, and I'm just weeping. I mean, I haven't cried this hard in a very, very long time. You see, while Mary, Ellie's mother, sees her and Charlie's daughter as a disgrace and as an awful person, Charlie sees the good in her. He is able to see the good in her, and it's not like Mary is a saint or anything. She's a drunk, abusive mother, from what we can understand, and the whole reason that she kept um, that she uh, pushed Charlie away after everything that happened uh, was because she was afraid that Charlie would see how Ellie turned out, and then Charlie would therefore think that um, Mary is a bad mother. What I love about the dynamic, uh, and also just the, the arc with Charlie and Ellie, is that they sort of both learn to love each other again. Charlie never stopped loving Ellie, but he definitely had to reconnect with her after not seeing or communicating with her um, for so long. And, you know, Ellie, of course, like, you know, at a certain point in time, these two people had an amazing relationship, and then it was gone, and then the arc of this movie is them trying to rekindle it. And I love the reveal towards the end of the film that that essay that has been referenced and that Charlie has read so many times throughout the course of the movie... I love the reveal that that essay is Ellie's essay that she wrote when she was in eighth grade. And it really, really shows that if Charlie consistently over the years has had people read that essay to him in moments where he thought his time was up, it, it makes it so clear that he truly never lost his love for his daughter whatsoever. And he probably always felt remorseful and regretful and resented himself for his actions, which is why it is so emotionally fulfilling and still heartbreaking um, in that final scene when Ellie is not only like the person who wrote the essay, like not only is that being revealed, but also Ellie is the one reading it to him. And, it, you know, he's, he's an English professor, and he says throughout the movie that it's his favorite essay, and we never really understand particularly why until, um, until this, final, this final scene, where we truly understand, or at least until where it's revealed, like, it, until the point in the film where it's revealed that the essay was written by Ellie. 
on a personal level, I can relate to a lot of what Charlie's going through. Obviously, I've never experienced morbid obesity or anything, but when it comes to the depression, the anxiety, the religious trauma, the oppression for being part of the LGBTQ plus community, I have experienced all of those things. And, you know, the, the overeating is definitely something I have experienced too. It's something that I've struggled with. It's something that I, I still struggle with from time to time. Obviously, as I said, by no means to the severity to which it has affected Charlie, but it is still something I struggle with, and it is many times a result of the depression and the anxiety and the trauma overtaking my thoughts in my brain. It, it, it leads me to make some very unhealthy decisions with myself physically. It is absolutely a form of self-harm, which just made me relate to this movie um, so much more than I would have if it was a more surface-level written script. I just couldn't help but feel for Charlie so, so much throughout the movie. And look, I'm sorry if you want a more scholarly, articulated analysis of this film, but that that's not what this podcast is. Uh, this is a personal outlet for myself to discuss the existential things about certain pieces of media and relate it to my own personal experiences to attempt to make sense of my never-ending existential crisis. I just feel for Charlie's story so much. Obviously, it, it was so wrong of him uh, to have an affair, uh, you know, while in a marriage. Like, it was wrong of him to cheat on his wife for sure. Um, but, you know, you hear the details of the backstory and what happened with Alan and the beauty of Charlie's relationship with Alan, and you just can't help but feel for the man. I mean, I... I'm not, you know, I've never had that exact experience. I've never had a, a guy that I was in love with kill themselves because of the church, at least uh, not that I know of. There's some people that I haven't checked up on in a long time that I probably should. That was, uh, <laughs> woo, dark humor. We love dark humor. But it's just that struggle, and, you know, I absolutely can relate to the extent of me having my own religious trauma and the church making me want to die like I'm sorry that I can't phrase it in a more articulate way but that's what it feels like man I mean the church and my time in it sent me into some of the lowest lows that I've ever been in my life and I'm still dealing with the repercussions of leaving the faith and um, repercussions of the trauma that I endured through that church and just constantly being told that my very existence, something I have no control over whatsoever, and that isn't influenced by anything, it's just how I am, is sinful and was going to condemn me to hell for eternity, that, that some members of my family were going to burn in hell for eternity. I mean, you, you spend so much, you, you know, you spend a, a good enough portion of your youth hearing that, it's going to take a lot for that to, to leave your mind because, you know, I, I mean, I think it's why I still have such a massive guilt complex now where I always feel like I'm doing something wrong. That is absolutely attributable to my time in the church and the religious trauma that I had to endure um, and still have to endure because of it. And I think a lot of that is also what is fueling Charlie's actions in the film when, when he realizes that he is officially 100% going to die within a week, or less than a week, really. I think he feels this immense guilt um, and probably has this massive guilt complex that he's developed because of all the religious trauma and because of everything that happened with Alan. And so that's a part of his character that I feel is very intact when it comes to the writing of the film. It, it makes so much sense to me. Um, all of his motivations are very understandable, very well fleshed out. Even the most like oblivious audience member, uh, I think, would be able to, to understand um, what his motivations are. And that's not to say that the movie is shoving it down your throat or being overly obvious or, you know, treating you like an idiot or anything. It's just so well done to the point where anybody can understand it, which I think is a massive praise of the movie. I also love that it's revealed that that is why Liz is Charlie's best friend and caregiver in his morbidly obese state. They have this trauma bond through their trauma in the church, which is so real, take it from me, um, and also the death of Alan, who was Liz's older brother, or younger brother. It might have been younger brother. And here's the thing, that wasn't necessary at all. You know, maybe, like, Liz could have easily come into Charlie's life after that just to be his caregiver and sort of his nurse um, in his, you know, final years alive. But 
I guess Darren Aronofsky just couldn't I mean I know he didn't write it this is based on a play I guess the writer just couldn't help but make it 10 times better by explaining the reason behind their connection and relating Liz to Alan like like familiarly um to therefore after the events that happened with Alan bond her with Charlie it it makes so much sense and it just feels like such a tightly written script and everybody's connected in some way and I just I love that and I must say despite the character's limited screen time I do think that Mary has some of the most powerful moments in the movie I mean aside from the ending she potentially has the most powerful scene in the movie with Brendan Fraser's now iconic line I need to know that I have done one thing right with my life and that line also just speaks volumes to the motivation of this character. I mean, it sort of states them explicitly while still somehow making it not feel like it's being shoved down your throat. He sounds so honest and vulnerable when he says it, and it just more than confirms that he hates himself. And the part of the essay that, like the essay about Moby Dick that Ellie wrote that we constantly hear throughout the movie is that, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be able to quote it directly, but it's essentially along the lines of, the parts that I didn't enjoy the most were the boring parts, or it was something along the lines of the most boring parts of this book were the parts that were actually about Moby Dick and about all the action and the hunt for the whale. And that's because that I felt when I was reading these parts that the author was simply trying to save himself, was simply trying to save us, the viewers, from his own sad story, which is just, I mean, that's base. if Charlie were to write a thesis about his last days alive, that would absolutely be it. He's trying to give so much love to other people to save them from his own sad story. This is also why he does not tell them that he is going to die by the weekend initially, because he wants to save them from that dread. And if we want to get even more depressing, that essay that we keep referring back to also says that they also says that Ellie feels bad for the whale. It, it's this creature that has no emo- no emotions. It is an amoral creature, and the author just wants to kill this whale, which sort of implies that there's multiple characters running through Charlie's head that all represent a part of his psychology and a part of his mind and, you know, words, <laughs> psychology words. There would be the author of Moby Dick, and then there would be Moby Dick himself, the whale, which we can say Charlie has become both in a physical way, but also in a mental and emotional way. He has no emotions for himself, anymore. He only feels hatred for himself. He is numb. He is he just wants to die, which is another reason why we can assume that he hasn't wanted to seek medical attention aside from wanting to save all that money to be able to give to Ellie when he eventually passed. It's also just cuz he didn't want saving. And if the denying medical care storyline wasn't enough to hit that home, I I believe that that is why the uh Thomas character is in the film to further hit home that you know, even in a religious context, which doesn't cost any money most of the time, um, Charlie still denies it. He still does not want to be safe. So it is absolutely an emotional motivator for him as well. It's it's something that is fueled by his emotions and, and personal feelings of not wanting to be pitied, not wanting to be saved, or in other words, trying to save others from his own sad story. And I just find that to be so beautiful. And as I said, the heart and soul of the movie is Charlie and Ellie. And I think that the ending of the film is just so emotionally fulfilling, whether or not you interpret it as a happy ending or a sad ending or tragic or joyful. I don't think anybody would deny that it is an extremely emotionally fulfilling ending either way, which is what I think the true success of this movie is. The fact that it's not only people who interpret it as being a happy ending who loved it. There's plenty of people who interpret it as a very sad and dour ending who also loved it. The fact that your movie can be interpreted in every way and be viewed as great in each and every one of those ways I think is a testament to how great your movie probably is, and that applies to this film, despite the fact that it was a little divisive amongst critics, which did surprise me a little bit. Charlie just truly does not catch a break throughout the entirety of this movie, and I'm just sitting here thinking about my own life, and it's just like... Yeah, you know, like I just relate to it. I, and that's that's my two cents. Yeah. 
Here's a quote from Xavier Reichbaum about the profound nature of the film The Whale, directed by incredible legendary director Darren Aronofsky, and the quote is, quote, yeah, end quote. <laughs> but no, like, like seriously, it, it truly is how it feels. I think this, the way that this movie portrays just the desolate nature, sort of outside looking in on it, of how it truly is, how it truly feels, I think the way it portrays it is it just speaks to me so much. The score is haunting and tragic and heartbreaking. It, it sort of reminded me of some of the string work that uh, Hildur Gurunitor did for Joker. It just really, really got to me, and, and I have listened uh, to that score a few times uh, since my viewing of the film. I think all of the arcs between the characters were wrapped up so well. I mean, I genuinely feel that this is a nearly flawless movie in almost every way. I, I think it's genuinely a perfectly written narrative. And a lot of movies depict people going through struggle, but not a lot of them do it in the way that this film does. And it's not that those filmmakers don't want to. I think it's just that they're afraid to, because it's like, how miserable can you make your movie until people just check out? But you look at audience scores of this movie, and people really loved it. They were really hooked by it, and it made people feel things, you know? It got to them, and it was understood by people. And look, that's what happens when you are honest in your filmmaking, which I am sort of just now having the revelation in the moment that that's Charlie's whole thing throughout the movie. He hates it. He hates dishonesty now at this point in his life. He gets pissed at his students and he's just like, write something fucking honest. And he feels fulfilled when they write something honest. His favorite essay of all time is his favorite one because it was written by Ellie, but also because of the way it was written and the fact that you can tell that the author of it is just being so honest. He adores honesty. And that's shown in the real-life reception of this movie. People adored the movie because it was just honest and so raw and just, like, just in its depiction of all of these things, it was just so authentic with its emotions and everything and, like, every message that it was trying to communicate. It just did it so honestly and truthfully and synonyms. And it just touched me on such a deep level. And, hell, I mean... You know, I gotta be honest with you guys, I've been going through some really, really tough times recently. I mean, I, I've had to have a very close friend of mine uh, talk me out of certain decisions, and, um, you know, I I wake up one morning and I watch this movie, and I just... <sighs> I mean... Sorry. Um, it just sort of made me look at myself, and just reevaluate a lot <laughs> um about my life um and i i genuinely believe that it it set me on a very good path and i just i don't know i think um i think my viewing of this movie really did a lot for me i mean and and this is why film is just such a beautiful art form and my favorite right next to theater it's just it's the most penetrative art form there's so many factors at play sound visuals music and acting and production design there's just every aspect of art goes into crafting a film and it's just so penetrative in that way it just really gets to your heart it can really get to your emotions get into your head and just you know make you relate to it on such a deep level and I, I mean this is why I love movies this is this movie reminded me why I'm pursuing what I'm pursuing it, it reinstilled my belief that film is the most beautiful art form to ever be conceived by humankind I mean it did so much for me on an artistic level and on a personal level I mean this movie really made me look at myself it made me think about my own life um, which I'm also realizing one of the lines in the essay in the movie is this book made me think about my own life and this movie is essentially doing everything that Moby Dick did for Ellie when she wrote that essay about it in eighth grade. It's, it made me think about my own life and I just, I can't sing its praises enough. It, it's done so much for me. It's still doing so much for me. I haven't been able to stop talking about it, stop thinking about it. I recommend this movie to everyone. Everybody needs to see this film. It's a true masterpiece, and the messages within it are just so 
deep and existential. And that's what this podcast is all about. And what's so touching about it is the fact that Charlie never gives up on Ellie, even though he has so many moments where he could. When he tells her to write something honest in that notebook and he's expecting something truly beautiful and then it's just that stuff she wrote about his apartment smelling and her hating everyone, he has every right to be annoyed and be like, oh my god, okay, I guess I'm not, but no. He breaks down, he he bursts into laughter, this joyful laughter at what his daughter wrote, his own flesh and blood, what she wrote. And he cries reading it because he feels her emotions. It's a way for her, a way for him to connect with her. And it's just so beautiful when he sees that she's making fun of him online and whatnot. He could absolutely feel terrible about that and be like, oh my God, but no. He looks at that and he doesn't take it personally. He looks at that and recognizes that it is a sign that Ellie is in so much pain and is experiencing so much depression and anxiety and just overwhelming shit because of her life, and he continues to take chances on her. I mean, it's fucking beautiful. I truly don't see how anybody could watch this movie and not appreciate this stuff and not fall in love with its narrative and the way that it executed its its arcs and the characters and the performance and just everything about it I cannot stop thinking about this movie I'm I'm totally down to say it's one of my favorites of all time it's out there for sure please know that going in if you haven't watched it and you still stuck around for this entire episode um it's it's a it's a rough journey but it's absolutely worth it for the payoff of how everything comes to a conclusion and it touched me on such a deep emotional level I'm never going to stop thinking about this movie. It it left a permanent mark on my mind and on my heart, and I'm just happy that it exists. And I I don't know. I'm just so moved by it and its characters and the way it was all handled and what it did for me. I just, yeah, it's, it's fucking incredible, and that's what The Whale did for me. Guys, thank you very much for listening to this episode. It truly does mean a lot, much longer than the first episode for sure, and unlike what I said in the first episode, I actually did not set a timer for this episode, so I actually have no idea how long this is going to be, but as I said, the the length doesn't really... (laughs) The size doesn't matter. What matters is what you do with it. And you know what? That's where I'm going to end the episode. So guys, once again, thank you so much for listening. I hope you continue to listen. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. And as always, this has been the Headspace Podcast.